Welcome back to episode 35 of the March of History. I am your host, as always, Trevor Furness, and I am recording today again in the city of Huelva in Spain. And tomorrow, I will actually be headed to Sevilla for the weekend, or Seville as we know it in English, to explore some of the history there. So if you're a follower of the Instagram channel or the Facebook page, you've probably seen plenty of pictures of Seville already, and I hope you enjoyed those. Now, I want to start this episode today a little bit differently with a quote taken from Caesar's very own Gallic Commentaries. In fact, these are the famous first words of the Gallic Commentaries, the words that it begins with. And just a fun fact, if you've ever seen HBO's Adams, it's a it's a short, I guess you'd call it a mini-series about the life of John Adams. If you listen closely in the first episode, there's a scene where you can hear John Adams' kids learning about Caesar's Gallic Wars and reading this same famous line that I'm about to read to you. The American founding fathers were absolutely obsessed with what is known as the classical world or the classical age or the classical era. These are all names for the same thing. That is the period of history ranging from roughly the 6th century BC to the 8th century AD. And specifically, that is the history of the Mediterranean during that time. And to be even more specific... They were obsessed with the histories of Greece and Rome during those periods. So even though Egypt and many other countries today are part of the Mediterranean, they are not, as I know it, or as I believe, considered part of the classical era. That's kind of a euphemism for the histories of Greece and Rome. And this infatuation they had with ancient Greece and with ancient Rome informed everything the Founding Fathers did and everything that they said while forming the young nation that became the United States of America. Anyway, those are just some fun facts for you. Let's get back to Caesar and the quote I promised to read to you. Caesar's commentaries start out as follows, quote, The whole of Gaul is divided into three parts, one of which the Belgae inhabit, the Aquitani another, and the third are people who, in their own language, are called Celts, but in ours, Gauls. End quote. Julius Caesar, Gallic Commentaries. And the reason I read you that line from the Gallic Commentaries is not just because it's famous, but because it applies to today's episode. Caesar says in that quote that all of Gaul is divided into three parts. And some historians have had their doubts as to how accurate this was, but nevertheless, this is the way the Romans saw the portion of Gaul that they didn't control. And if you are a visual learner, which I don't know how you found your way to a podcast, but <laughs> if you are a visual learner, go ahead and pull up the March of History Instagram or the Facebook page or even the Twitter, and I will have posted by the time you hear this a map that shows the three areas of Gaul as the Romans knew them. We have Aquitania in the southwestern part that is today southern France. And we have Celtia, or Gaul as the Romans knew it, which mainly occupies the center of modern France and I think into Switzerland, but I'm not certain on that one. And finally, to the north, we have Belgica, which comprises modern-day Belgium, the Netherlands, northern France, and little old Luxembourg. Now stick with me here, because I promise this entire episode will not just be one big geography lesson. Thus far in our story of Caesar and Gaul, everything we have talked about in Gaul has taken place in the central part, the part that Caesar refers to as Gaul, or that he says that they refer to as Celtica. 
That means both the battles with the Helvetii and the battle with the Germans took place in this region. But now, after the first winter, our story takes a turn in geography. Caesar finds himself embroiled with the Belgae, the people that occupy that portion of Gaul furthest north in modern-day Belgium and Netherlands, northern France, and little Luxembourg. You see, we left off last in Gaul with Caesar defeating Ariovistus and his Germans. Then you'll remember Caesar left his legions to winter in free Gaul, which was not Roman territory. And this was a message to all the Gauls that Rome was here to stay and was not going to put down these migrating tribes and then go back to Roman provinces and and leave them be to foment more rebellions, or not rebellions, but more unrest in, in the free provinces of Gaul. And after this, Caesar then went back to his three provinces to do all the administrative work required of a governor of three provinces and all the politicking that was required to keep his enemies in Rome from stabbing him in the back. And Caesar politicking during the winters to prevent political enemies from stabbing him in the back is something that we will talk about in further detail probably after this year in Gaul. Well, the Gauls certainly didn't miss the message Caesar had sent them by wintering his troops in their territory. And it seems that particularly it was the northern region of Belgica that took offense to this the most. These were the tribes in Gaul that were furthest away from Rome and therefore the most barbaric, the most warlike, and the toughest and least refined of all the Gallic tribes. And many of these Belgic tribes didn't want German or Roman influence in Gaul, and saw both as equally dangerous. And Caesar says that they felt that the Romans would eventually turn on the Belgae, and so it was best to strike the Romans now before they got stronger in Gaul. And this is one of those weird moments in the commentaries where Caesar is placing a very strong argument in the mouth of an opponent. Because, in hindsight, this is exactly what happens— The Romans never stop. You know, once they get control of Gaul, they keep on moving. And eventually, during the time of Augustus, they try to take over Germany or Germania, as it was known. So, I mean, in a way, the Belgae kind of saw the writing on the wall. They knew that Caesar and the Romans were not going to be content just to control the central part of Gaul, that sooner or later, the Romans would come for Belgae as well. And so it's best to attack the Romans before they gather their strength. And so with that thought in mind, certain leaders among the Belgae and among the Gauls of Central Gaul began organizing the Belgae, who were the people of Belgica, to rise up against the Romans and throw them out of Gaul altogether. And Caesar in the commentaries gives other reasons for their motivations as well. He says that some of the men doing the agitation to raise this fight against Rome were the type of men that delighted in the change of rule. That is to say that there are people who thrived in chaos, who thrived when one government fell and another one rose, probably people who were down on their luck and down in fortune, who had taken big gambles like a Catiline, right, and would do best from a regime change. So some of the men that were agitating for this fight against Rome, Caesar says, at least according to Caesar, right, so we have one source for this is were these sorts of men that wanted a chaotic environment. Now, other men, Caesar says, had other aims. This other group were mainly men from central Gaul who desired to make themselves kings of their tribes or of Gaul in general. And these sort of men felt that this would be far more difficult under a strict 
disciplined Roman rule than under the kind of chaotic self-rule of the Gauls right now. So these men had it in their minds that it was in their best interest to make sure the Romans did not take over Gaul. Regardless of whatever mix of motivations these men had, the tribes soon began to form alliances in the way that Gallic tribes always formed alliances. They exchanged hostages with each other. That is, the leading men of each tribe traded their children so that all of them would have equal power over each other and that all of them would be invested in success for the campaign. If the war starts going badly, it makes it a lot tougher to betray your fellow tribes to the Romans if those tribes have your children as hostages. And soon all the tribes of Belgica join this alliance against Rome except for one tribe. This is a tribe known as the Remi. And keep that name in mind because it's going to become important later in the story. Now, with the scene set for what's happening in Gaul, let's get back to Caesar. Caesar, for his part, is down in Nearer Gaul, or Cisalpine Gaul. This was the area of Gaul on the near side of the Alps in relation to Rome. Basically, it was northern Italy, and it was a Roman province, one of Caesar's three provinces that he rules over as governor or proconsul. And Caesar, despite being very busy running his provinces and politicking, always makes sure to keep an ear out for what is happening in Free Gaul, which, again, is not a province. It's really not even a territory. I I call it Free Gaul because they're not ruled over by the Romans. They have self-rule, as opposed to the two provinces that the Romans have in Gaul, Transalpine Gaul and Cisalpine Gaul. So even though Caesar doesn't rule over this portion of Gaul that I'm calling Free Gaul, but this is not what the Romans called it, he always makes sure to know what's going on there with its politics because he knows it's going to affect him as governor and it's going to affect Rome in general. And soon Caesar begins to hear rumors of an alliance among the Belgae. And then he gets confirmation of these rumors from his right-hand man, Titus Labienus, who is presumably with the army. And in reaction to these reports, Caesar enlists another two legions in Cisalpine Gaul. And again, he does this without permission from the Senate. And technically, this is illegal. But in reality, it's only illegal if he loses this war, or if he loses a large battle. And that's true of a lot of things Caesar is doing in Gaul. And this is a point I've made to you in the past, that many of the things Caesar does in Gaul are illegal, are not proper for him to be doing, are not with permission from the Senate, and therefore he only gets away with because he is winning. But since then, I have read alternative takes on this, that maybe it's not so black and white that what Caesar was doing was illegal. Maybe it is some kind of area of gray. So... As always, on the March of History, my goal is to give you all the different viewpoints and you as a listener can make your own informed decision as to whether Caesar was breaking all the laws or whether he was justified in what he was doing. But with that in mind, I'm going to share kind of a different take with you today. So as we said, Caesar has no clear permission from the Senate to winter his army in Gaul. He also had no permission to go after Ariovistus and the Germans or the Helvetii for that matter. But the question is, did Caesar really need permission from the Senate to do any of these things? And that's where this gets gray. Adrian Goldsworthy says in his book, Caesar, Life of a Colossus, on this exact subject, quote, Caesar had decided to push the Roman sphere of influence further north, claiming that this was necessary to prevent other forces from dominating the region and ultimately threatening the security of the province. 
These motives were entirely appropriate for a Roman governor, and even if Caesar's actions interpreted his duty in an extremely aggressive way, he still remained within the boundaries of proper action for a magistrate of the Republic. Pompey had behaved in a similar fashion during his eastern campaigns, but his and Caesar's campaigns differed only in scale from the actions of many earlier Roman generals. Few of these men have subsequently been challenged because of their actions, and even fewer actually punished. In the commentaries, Caesar claims that the Belgae planned and began a preemptive attack to challenge Roman power. He was effectively acting in the same way. By the standards of the time, neither of them were acting unreasonably. End quote. So you can see a very different take from Goldsworthy there. In Goldsworthy's words, Caesar wasn't the first governor to behave in this way, and past governors had rarely been punished for being aggressive and going after enemies before they became larger threats. Also, he makes the point that both the Belgae and Caesar are attempting preemptive strikes, so they are both playing by basically the same set of rules. So Caesar doesn't have explicit consent from the Senate, but Goldsworthy says that as proconsul responsible for the defense of these three provinces, Caesar doesn't need permission. That's inherent in his duty as proconsul. The question then becomes, what qualifies as the defense of his provinces? Defending his borders, of course, but what about preemptive strikes? Is a preemptive strike really a defensive measure? And some would say that the Roman Empire was built on defensive preemptive strikes just like this. So in many ways, Caesar planning a preemptive strike as a form of defense is an extremely Roman way of thinking. So even today, it is unclear if what Caesar was doing was illegal or not, but in many ways, this is kind of a mute point. Because legal or not, if Caesar fails in his conquest, the political sharks will start circling and take him down. And in that case, if his war had been illegal or unjust, they will call him to account for this. And in that case, if his war had been legal or just, they will still attack him nonetheless. It makes no difference. Much like today's politics in the U.S., both sides are deeply entrenched. And they will go after their political enemies, right or wrong. You know, right or wrong never even factors into it. But as I've said in the past, as long as Caesar wins battles that glorify Rome, that humble the enemies of Rome, that bring back massive riches to Rome, even his hardest critics find it tough to do anything about his transgressions. And as I've said a hundred times on this podcast, so I promise you I won't beat this dead horse anymore, Caesar is gambling on his own success and his own abilities. And of course, he is a man with immense self-confidence, and not without reason. So when he gambles on himself, he gambles big. Now, let's leave the question of the legality of Caesar's Gallic Wars there for now, and let's get back to our narrative. Once spring comes and the winter snows and the passes between the Alps begin to melt, Caesar sends another of his legates named Quintus Pettius to bring these two new legions to the Roman province of Further Gaul, or Transalpine Gaul, to join up with the rest of the army. And as soon as food has been gathered for the army, Caesar goes and joins them himself. But while this is happening, while Caesar is waiting for his army to gather enough food to make the march, he orders the tribes bordering the Belgae to keep tabs on the Belgae and inform him as to what they are up to. And this is a good time for me to make 
a kind of a small sub point here. Let's never forget that the Gauls had a large hand in their own conquering. I mean, even the Roman cavalry of Caesar's armies were often made up of mostly or entirely Gallic cavalry. And I've often wondered how history would have been different if the Gauls showed a united front against Caesar and the Romans from the beginning. That would have meant that Caesar would have no cavalry to speak of, no grain supplies, and no intelligence. And no intelligence means no guides to the endless dark forests of Gaul. But that is a wonderful what-if that we do not know the answer to. What would have happened if the Gauls had united and formed a united force against Caesar and the Romans in the beginning? We just don't know. Anyway, these tribes come back to Caesar when he's actually joined his army, and they confirm that the Belgae are gathering an army themselves. And at this point, after hearing this, Caesar decides that speed was his greatest ally. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, rather than sitting there and gathering up all the resources and troops he possibly could, Caesar instead races forward to meet the Belgae and check their gathering. So he sets off with all eight of his legions at a breakneck pace for Belgica. And in only two weeks, they reached the borders of the tribe known as the Remi. Remember, that was the one Belgic tribe that refused to join the alliance against the Romans. And Caesar himself in his commentaries claims that this march was quicker than any of the Belgae expected, and his arrival surprised them. Now, the Remi were the nearest tribe to Rome, considered part of the Belgae by the Romans, rather than Celts or Gauls. And the reason that they defect to Rome may have just been as simple as the fact that they're the closest ones to Rome and therefore have the most to fear from a Roman invasion. Well, the Remi immediately sent envoys to Caesar, promising that they had no intention of joining the alliance against Rome and further that they would support Rome and were actively gathering hostages to send to Caesar without him even asking. They also say that they will surrender all of their towns and villages to him and the Romans and supply his army with food during their campaign. And to me at least, in reading the ancient sources, it is somewhat unclear whether they were planning to surrender before Caesar suddenly arrived on their doorstep with an army, or if that was something that they decided last minute after Caesar showed up. In other words, were they planning on joining this alliance the entire time, and then boom, Caesar's on their doorsteps with eight legions, and, oh, Caesar, you're here so quick, we're happy to have you, we were planning on joining your side the whole time, right? Or were they planning to join the Romans the whole time, and just hadn't gotten around to telling Caesar about it, and then boom, he's right on top of them, and they have to kind of make their decision. But if you are a member of the Belgae during these times, what the Remi are doing has to be the most despicable, treacherous act you can imagine. They are betraying all the peoples related to them. They are connected through marriages. They are connected through blood. They are connected through language and through cultural customs. Their tribe is not exactly the same as the other tribes. There are differences but they have far more similarities than differences. And here they have defected to the Romans and are doing everything they can to help the Romans in a war against the Belgae. But from Caesar and the Romans' point of view, this is a huge help to them. 
And Caesar makes sure to take full advantage of this and gain as much in intelligence as possible. First, he asks the Remy envoys to tell him more about the Belgic states. How many soldiers under arms do they have? What is their strength in war? And it's good for Caesar to be getting intelligence from the Belgae, but to me, it's a little worrying how little he seems to know at this point based on the questions that he's asking. But then again, maybe that is more of a modern bias when access to information is so easy. In the ancient world, accurate intelligence was extremely hard to come by, and maps were often inaccurate if they even existed. Travel was exceptionally dangerous too, so it's not as if lots of officers in Caesar's army had traveled to see the Belgae while on vacation and knew the local terrain. For guides, I think they mainly relied on Roman traders who had traded with the Belgae before the war began, and on allied Gallic tribes who would provide guides to the Romans. And because of this lack of information on Gaul from the Roman perspective, much of Gaul was seen as being filled with endless, dark, and haunting forests. Or at least, this is probably the way it was seen from the perspective of the common legionary. A land filled with barbaric peoples that seemed able to melt into the very forests. A land where no clear maps could show you where this forest ended and where that city was to be found. And Tom Holland does an excellent job describing this in his book Rubicon, The Last Years of the Roman Republic. Quote, When winter thawed to spring and Caesar left camp, he had an army of eight legions, some 40,000 men by his side. He would need every last one. Heading due north, Caesar was venturing into territory never before penetrated by Roman forces. It was shadow-haunted, sinister, dank with mud and slaughter. Travelers whispered of strange rites of sacrifice performed in the dead of oaken glades or by the side of black-watered, bottomless lakes. Sometimes it was said that nights would be lit by vast torches of wickerwork erected in the forms of giants, their limbs and bellies filled with prisoners writhing in, in an orgy of death. Even at the feasts for which the Gauls were famous, their customs were barbarous and repulsive. The ubiquitous Posidonius, who had traveled through Gaul in the 90s BC, taking note wherever he went, observed that duels were common over the best cuts of meat, and that even when warriors did get around to feasting, they would not lie down to eat as civilized men did, but would sit and let their straggling mustaches drip with grease and gravy. Blank-eyed spectators of these scenes of gluttony and a spectacle even more repellent were the severed heads of the warrior's enemies, stuck on poles or in niches. So universally were these used as decorations in Gaulish villages that Posidonius confessed he had almost grown used to them by the end of his trip. To the legionaries marching ever farther north along pitted, winding tracks, peering nervously through the endless screens of trees, it must have appeared that they were entering a realm of utter darkness. End quote. No one says it better than Tom Holland. Caesar was leading his soldiers into a land of mystery filled with savage beasts, from the Roman perspective at least. It was a great unknown that is hard for us modern people to wrap our heads around. I mean, I can pull up on Google Maps 
a street view of a random town in Mongolia in seconds. But in the ancient world, it wasn't always clear what was beyond the next hill, never mind what was you know, 100 or 1,000 miles away. The world was mysterious and confusing in a, in a way back then that is very difficult for us to understand now. Which brings us to talking about Caesar and his intelligence. That is to say, his intelligence operation, not his personal intelligence. Despite the obvious hurdles of obtaining reliable intelligence in the ancient world, Caesar always made intelligence a priority on his campaigns. We can see this in the fact that he begins questioning the Rami about the Belgae right away. We can see this in the fact that even in Cisalpine Gaul, he was receiving reports on the Belgae forming an alliance against Rome, and that's something that was happening many, many, I believe at least hundreds of miles away. And we can see this way back when he was perched just outside of Rome and was receiving reports that the Helvetii were gathering and planning to march through his Roman province. Even then, he had a healthy knowledge of their planned routes and their motivations behind their migration. Or another example is when Caesar personally questioned the captives from Ariovistus' German army as to why Ariovistus was holding back from a pitched battle. Caesar always saw the value of intelligence and it often served him very well, and that's a lesson we can take away from studying his life. But we've gotten derailed again, so let's get back to our narrative. Caesar is talking to the Remy, and the Remy are a wealth of information for Caesar on the Belgae. They are legitimate insiders, after all. They were part or are part of the Belgae. And they tell Caesar a number of very important and other interesting details. And one of those is that most of the Belgae are actually of Germanic ancestry. Their ancestors had crossed over the Rhine River long ago because the soil was more fertile on this side, the French side, the modern French side of the river, than it was on the German side. So even in Caesar's narrative, where he's the one who depicts a clear difference between Gauls and Germans, we can see the dividing line between the Gauls and Germans is getting hazy. And the Belgae, however many years and generations ago this was, after crossing the Rhine had forced out the original Gallic inhabitants that had lived there. And during the time of the Cimbri and Titone, those migrations which Caesar's uncle Marius had defeated, the Belgae had been the only tribes of Gaul able to keep these roaming Germanic tribes out of their territory. And this had led to them having a sort of legendary military prowess among the Gauls in Caesar's day. They were seen as tougher and fiercer and more aggressive and more warlike than the rest of Gaul. And as for the numbers of the Belgae warriors, the Remi claimed to have exact numbers. They told Caesar they were connected with these tribes via marriage and via physical proximity, and that this is how they came to know the numbers of warriors in each tribe. And again, in my mind, this makes their betrayal all the more despicable. And it was probably just such defections that led Caesar to say the famous line, quote, I love treason, but hate the traitor. In other words, he loves when somebody's willing to sell out their own people and help the Romans and help himself and make his life easier. He loves that. But as far as the person who did it, the actual traitor, he hates them. He despises them. 
because it's such a despicable act, right? Even though they're helping you, if they betrayed their own people, how can you really trust them? They had no compulsion against betraying their own people. Why would they not betray you? But I think that's a great line. I love treason, but hate the traitor. But the numbers that the Remy give to Caesar are as follows. They say that the strongest, bravest, and most numerous tribe in among the Belgae was a tribe known as the Belovaki, with 100,000 men, and that the Belovaki had dedicated 60,000 of these men to the campaign against the Romans. The next strongest tribe was the Suessiones, who pledged another 50,000 soldiers to the cause. And their king, a man named Galba, who was renowned for his ability in battle, was also given full command of the joint allied force, that is, the allies of Belgae against the Romans. Another tribe was called the Nervi, and they pledged an additional 50,000 men. And the Nervi were known to live in a very remote, faraway area, so even among the Gauls, they were considered particularly fierce and particularly aggressive and untainted by the refined life that Romans and civilization brought. And finally, the smaller tribes were the Atrobates, who pledged 15,000, the Ambiani, who pledged 10,000, the Marini, who pledged 25,000, the Benapi, who pledged 7,000, the Caletti, who pledged 10,000, the Veliocases, and the Theoromadui, who pledged a combined 10,000, and the Aduatucci, who pledged 19,000. And then there were four additional tribes known among the Belgae as Germans, which I'm guessing this is because they migrated later and were more Germanic than the other Belgae, who you know, were also Germans, but that's just a guess on my part. It could be wrong. But these tribes were known as the Contrusi, the Eubrones, the Caroesi, and the uh, Pamani. And the Remy estimated that these four tribes would provide another 40,000 men. Now, please, please, please don't get lost in all the tribe names that just threw at you. You do not need to know all these tribes to be able to follow this story. I just mention them because so often in the story of Caesar and Rome, it is said that these Gallic tribes get treated like a second-class story, like their tribe names aren't worth being learned, their culture was barbaric before the Romans came around, and there's much evidence that that's not the case, that they had senates, that they had complex governments just like the Romans did. So I like to tell you the names of the Gallic tribes, just so if you are interested, you can know them, but you don't need to know them to follow the story. After all, the story I'm telling you is the story from the perspective of Julius Caesar. This is Julius Caesar's biography. So the tribes matter, but they're not essential to have their names memorized. But the most important part about that report I just gave you from the Remy were the numbers. And these numbers were massive in terms of the ancient world. I mean, doing the math, the Allied Belgae force adds up to roughly 296,000 men. Meanwhile, even with two extra legions recently raised, giving them a total of eight legions, the Romans would have had roughly 32 to 40,000 soldiers plus Allied auxiliaries. 
And that's just an estimate since it's surprisingly difficult to find numbers on the Roman side, and even more so with the auxiliaries. Now, for Caesar's part, he never comments in the commentaries as to whether he thinks that the numbers given by the Remy are accurate or not. So we really don't know if this is wild exaggeration by the Remy, or if the Romans were really outnumbered that badly. Regardless, it, it does seem likely that the Romans were outnumbered in a big way is more of a question of how much were they outnumbered by. But Caesar, for his part, as always, doesn't panic. First, he treats the Remy very nicely and encourages them in their help of Rome. He also commands their entire Senate to come before him and that their children of the senators should be brought as hostages with them. Next, Caesar goes to Divicciacus, his old druid friend of the Idui, who is with Caesar and the Roman army, and he butters Divicciacus up a little, and then he explains to him how essential it is to keep the forces of the Belgae from uniting into one massive force. And the best way to do this, as Caesar sees it, is for the Idui, Divicciacus' tribe, to begin raiding the territory of the Belgae and stealing as much plunder as they can. And this is a very smart strategy, because dividing this massive army is the best way to defeat it. And if the Idui begin attacking the territories of individual tribes as they are gathering, soon the tribes being attacked will want to leave the main army and defend their own homes and family. And once they are in smaller groups, they are easier for the Romans to defeat. Divide and conquer is the name of the game here. And what's more, the Idui are the best tool for the job. They have a strong force of cavalry, which can move quicker in hit-and-run raids than heavy Roman infantry. Also, they are Gauls, who probably know this territory better than any Romans. And if they get caught in any counter-ambushes, those are acceptable losses, in Caesar's eyes at least, since they're not the backbone of his army. The Roman infantry is the backbone of the army. Plus, the Gauls loved nothing more than to raid their neighbors. So, after getting permission from Daddy Rome, the Idaoi were probably like kids in a candy shop. And I'm sure Caesar probably didn't have to work too hard to convince them to accept this mission. And soon after this, Caesar gets word that the entire Belgic army has united already and begun marching towards him. But again, this is Caesar's intelligence network actively at work and keeping him informed on the situation. And Caesar was never one to let the initiative go to the enemy, so he quickly sets his legions to marching. And their destination was the river En, or Ain, spelled A-I-S-N-E. And this river was on the edge of the Remy's territory. And just to remind you, the Remy are the Belgic tribe that defected to Caesar. I just want to keep reminding you that because I know I've thrown a huge number of tribal names at you, and if you're new to this story, it's probably very confusing. And of course, with their rapid and energetic pace, Caesar and his legions arrive at the river En or Ain first, and they quickly cross it. And after crossing, Caesar has them construct a camp along the riverbank. And Roman camps were like temporary forts. They had big walls and, and large ditches dug and were basically very secure centers for the Roman army to wait for an enemy. And the Gallic commentaries, meaning Caesar, give several reasons for the location of this camp. 
First, having one side of the camp facing the river gives it protection from the enemy. In other words, the enemy can only attack three sides. And I at least imagine that this could work in reverse, too, because if you have to abandon the camp and flee at any point, or at least do a controlled retreat, it doesn't allow for an easy strategic retreat when you have a river behind you. I mean, I'm not a military tactician, so maybe I'm wrong, but it just reminds me of the Germans putting line of wagons behind their armies so they couldn't retreat. Like, yes, it forces you to fight, but it doesn't seem like strategic retreat becomes a possibility when you have a big river behind you. Anyway, the second reason Caesar chooses this location was that it would allow his allies to bring supplies across the river from the Remy territory direct to his camp. There's no risk of them being inter- intercepted by the Belgae because the Belgae are on the other side of the river with Caesar. Now, there was also a bridge over this river that Caesar ordered garrisoned. And finally, further down the river, Caesar places one of his legates, a man named Quintus Titurius Sabinus, with six cohorts. And Sabinus, he orders to build a camp with strong fortifications. So he's got two camps now. And Caesar really doesn't specify, but it's possible that this second camp was on the opposite side of the river to give protection from attacks from that direction, in case the Belgae tried to cross the river and attack from behind. So Caesar, now having chosen the terrain he wants and having constructed his two camps, sits back and waits for the Belgae to arrive. And that is where we will end this episode of the March of History today. But before we go, let me make a few quick announcements. The first thing, this is a little bit different, I would like to do a Q&A episode soon. So if you are an audience member that likes the podcast, that enjoys listening, and you have questions for me about history, about Caesar, about Rome, about Spain, about anything, feel free to send these questions to me either via the Instagram, the Facebook page, Twitter, the email, all of which I'm going to give to you right now, but I would like to do an episode where myself and, and maybe Brandon can come on it too if you have questions for Brandon, can you just answer these questions. And the reason, that, or really the reason why I'm doing it is because it, it gives a chance for us to interact and get to know our audience, and it gives you a chance to kind of pick our brains. So feel free to send those questions out. The sooner the better, and I can be in working on creating an episode like that and let's see what else. Oh, the Instagram is at the March of History. The Twitter is at March underscore history. The, the Facebook page you can find by just searching the March of History. Our email is the March of History at gmail.com. So any one of those platforms you can send us your questions on and we will look forward to answering them. And also don't forget, please, if you have an Apple device or if you listen on What's the other service? Audible. Feel free to, or please do, give us a review. We would love that. It helps the podcast grow. It helps other people know that it's a good podcast worth listening to. The more stars, the better. So we would appreciate that. And don't forget to share the podcast with others and subscribe so you get notifications. That is it for today's episode. As always, I appreciate you listening, and I am working hard on more episodes. So until next time, on the March of History.